Welcome to episode 6 of the Formula E Zone podcast. A pretty unique episode today considering all three of us were actually in Rome for the Rome E-Prix. So that's why it's a little bit late out but don't worry we've got plenty to talk about from a really unique perspective this time so hopefully fingers crossed everything goes well. As always links are in the description for Patreon, links to Twitter, all that good stuff. So before we start anything, let's let's meet the guests. And it's it's a very familiar lineup, and I'm sure you're all used to it by now. First of all, Jack, welcome back, Jack. Um, hello everybody. Yeah, it's great to be back. Thank you so much. Uh, it was it was a great weekend, mate. And uh, I just want to say again, th- thank you for for taking me with Formula E Zone. It was an absolute blast. Um, but unfortunately, you know, there was one stain on the weekend, and that was I had to meet Tobias. Um, <laughs> 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 uh, welcome back to bias <laughs> thanks for having me <laughs> to be fair to be yeah. fair it's normally me that's getting the um the hate from from dan so it's actually it's a nice change of pace well, yeah yeah i thought i better mix, mix it, up. it up a bit yeah <laughs> you know you took me to the race jackson you know, i've got to change it a little bit haven't i um but yes obviously today we're going to be talking about the rome e prix and before we get into any of the juicy details before we get into qualifying um two new drivers returning to the grid this weekend we had maxi gunther Ooh, yeah. and alex lynn um we didn't really discuss this in the pre sort of chat but alex lynn pk out were you too surprised at this sort of mid-season change? I'll start with you, Jack. Uh, I was surprised a little bit, actually. But to be fair, thinking about it, um, probably not. Because PK is, PK is a driver that if he's not winning, he's going to get upset fairly quickly. Because it's either win or, you know, he's like, win or go home. And I think he, he just, he had enough. And he might be regretting it, um, actually. Uh, funny enough, I'm not going to spoil it. Well, I, I know we kind of all know, but we'll talk about it later in the podcast. But... Um, you know, considering the result, he might be a bit regretting it. But you know, was it a one-off for Jaguar? Um, so, but yeah, I can sort of see maybe why PK left. He was sort of being outperformed by Evans as well. Yeah, and he's been outperformed by Evans for months and years. Yeah. Already. Ever since he joined Jaguar, he's just not been the same. Um, I'm surprised by the by the timing of the change. I'm not surprised by PK leaving Jaguar, but I was expecting to have the change take place after the season ended. That said, Lynn has been around ever since the Mexico round. I mean, ever since 2016, Donington preseason testing. He did a, a Jaguar test back then as well, when he was fighting against, uh, I think... I think it was Mitch yeah, Evans they, was uh, for the second seat alongside Adam Cowell. Yeah. yeah. And um, he was supposed to drive in the Mexico test and said he couldn't because he had Aston Martin commitments, obviously, where he's, he's racing in WEC with them. And that's the that, that, that was the big hindrance there. And now he's back at Jaguar as a full-time driver. And as I said, I'm... Uh, I'm not surprised by the move. I'm only surprised by the timing of the move because that just is a big upset to the team. Halfway point of the year, you usually don't want to change your lineup at this stage. Yeah, I felt Lin, Lin was a yeah. good um, replacement. He's sort of done. You've done Rome, yeah. done yeah. Paris. No one's yeah. done Burn, okay? Because it's a new track, and then he's done New York. So at least he he's a driver that knows the circuits has already Twice. been there. Yeah, that's true. 
That's actually a good point. Yeah, he's done all the all the circuits. He has done New York twice. Yep. The first time out, he he was on pole that he did New York. So he knows he certainly does know how to drive a race car, and he's been linked to Jaguar for three years, as I said. So yeah, it's it's, it's a fair decision f- by Jaguar to replace PK with Lynn. I'm a little surprised by the timing, as I said. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I agree with both of you there, um, and I like you say that. The timing may be a little bit strange, but that really didn't affect Jaguar like I expected to. Getting into Super Bowl straight away, Mitch Evans. Um, a real surprise, that one. I know um, I was speaking to you, Jack, at the beginning of the weekend, and you asked me who I thought was going to be on Super Bowl, and I, as a joke, said Mitch Evans. I, I thought, looking at Jack's <laughs> pace you know, across the majority of this season, it wasn't looking too great, but then to see him show that turn of pace in qualifying was bizarre. And actually, I think you know, this is, I'll let you two talk about this in a minute if you want, but this is just how qualifying is, isn't it? If you're in that group two, group three, yeah, you're going to be favoured for that super pole and changing conditions as well. It's a, a, a nice added touch, a nice bit of spice into qualifying, which I quite enjoyed as well. But we also saw the two dragon cars in the super pole. That was very strange to see. They haven't been on the podium this season. Van Dorn in that HWA car that I've been struggling so much. Lotterer. He looked super quick all weekend. He was probably, him and Boemi, the two that you maybe would perhaps expect to be in that super pole. But I'll start with you, Tobias. Was there anything really that jumped out at you at qualifying? Oh, Dragon, obviously. I mean, the thing about qualifying this time out was that the disadvantage of Group 1 was catalyzed by rain ahead of of the group qualifying. So we had... um, I mean, it was raining cats and dogs during the IPS HRV race. And that meant that the circuit was wet at the start of qualifying, and that just turned the tables, and Group 1 had an even bigger disadvantage compared to Group 4. And that meant that, obviously, HWA and both Dragons advanced to Super Pole. I think it's the first time we've actually seen proper pace coming out of the Dragon powertrain. The Penske EV3, I think it is, it's been nowhere this season. We've we've not seen any any bit of performance coming out of the Dragon, apart from this qualifying, and that's the thing that really stood out to me. I was jo- I was sitting near the Audi guys in the media center when I was there, and was telling him, "What year is it?" I mean, come on, are we back in 2016 again? <laughs> That's the yeah. last time we've seen actual pace coming out of, of out of the Dragon Garage. So, big surprise yeah. to see Dragon up that far, both both especially because it's both cars. Yeah, it was interesting with Dragon because we hadn't seen it. We hadn't seen it in ages, as you said. And for them to be there and actually challenging, it was good because you had to think about Jag- Dragon and it's an independent team compared to all the manufacturers that we have. Well, it, technically, I think it, it technically counts as a manufacturer team, essentially, with the Penske powertrain. But then, you know, obviously, they're not building road cars. They're there to just... They build their own in-house powertrain and they, they go racing. But if you're at the back and you're an independent team... And you're not looking like you're showing any signs of progression. You're like, when when is the plug going to be pulled on that team? I felt, you know, that was probably the first team I was looking to be taken over by a, a new manufacturer probably coming in. Because if they're not performing the way that they do, uh, that they have been, then it could have been. But at least there was a sign of hope for them in, in Rome in qualifying. That there is some pace somewhere in that powertrain. So hopefully for the rest of the season they can sort of extract that and actually like move forward and start scoring some points. 
That's true. Yeah. Dan, who were you surprised by? Oh, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, the Dragon Cars. Yeah, for sure. They were. Yeah. They were. I, I was surprised at Lotterer as well, actually. Um, not in the sense that you know I expect Lotterer to be thereabouts with Super Bowl, but how far and how comfortably he was ahead of Jev all weekend. Um, and I know the qualifying system favoured Lotterer over Jev, but he just seemed to really be able to nail this circuit and was probably, like I say, the, the biggest name up there in Super Bowl. So I was impressed with him, but I think everyone that made it into Super Bowl, it, it was just a, like I say, the, the changing conditions it was a really nice added touch. And we, there's always bizarre results in qualifying. But yeah, for me, Lotterer, I was impressed with that. To be fair, though, Super Bowl was pretty boring. Um, yeah, you think? Yeah, well, the rain affected it massively. It was raining really heavily when Bawemi went out, and then it started. Then it stopped raining. So, of course, Lotto made a mistake on his pole position lap. Yeah. And, you know, the Jaguar guys thought he had it, but the track had dried out so much between Evan's lap and Lotto's lap that he was still on pole. So it, yeah, that's I, true. I knew, I knew after ugh, Gunther and, and had gone out on his super pole lap, what was going to happen? I knew Lotterer would be on pole. I was already writing it. Because the track was drying out, and obviously the longer it dries out, the quicker the track's going to be. So the last man across the line, you know, pardon the pun in a sense, with everything we know about wet weather in motorsport, but the last man across the line will be on pole. And that person was Lotterer. So, so does this mean now, this, is, this might be wrong, I don't think it is, are Neo the only team that haven't got in super pole now? I would say yes, so, yeah. Yes, yes. Maybe yeah. HW, no, I'm not H- sure. I'm Van Dorn sure. was in Super Pole. Uh, Venturi, sorry. Yeah. HW certainly was in Super yeah. Pole. How about Venturi? I'm not sure about them. Yeah, I think Massa's got into mm. it. Anyway, that <laughs> doesn't matter too much. That was just yeah, really just... Anyway. Yeah, anyway. Um, Mortara's been in Super Pole. Mortara's been yeah. in Super Pole. Okay, good. Yeah, but no, Dr- Dragon, that was a mega job from them. Um their fortunes changed in lap one, I think we could say. <laughs> <laughs> that changed very, very quickly. Uh, lap one was one of the more crazier lap ones we have seen this season. Uh, early doors, pretty straightforward. It seems like there was guys on the, the dry side of the grid, really had good starts. But, but apart from that, we, we saw Lopez running wide. And the, the first corner, I think the nature of the corner, it was fairly clean for Formula E standards. Um, the rest of the lap wasn't clean by any means. We saw Sims in the wall. We saw Gunther doing some fast and furious Tokyo drifting going on, hit the wall and his bodywork flying all over the circuit going down the hill. Um, and, and then we saw a bit of an incident between Lopez again, this time with Sam Bird getting a bit messy. Um, Jack, you've got links with the Virgin team. Uh, how were you seeing this incident? Um, Sam... It was. I knew it was going to be a crash, Daddy. So they're coming down to that chicane just before the start line, uh, well, where the start was. And I, Sam did the switch back going in and was going around the outside and was clearly ahead. He was definitely like half a car ahead of Lopez. But with the nature of that corner being such a... You really have to swing it in. Like, it's not an easy chicane like you can get a move down the outside and sneak in on the inside. Because you really have to turn the car in order to get the move done, which Bird obviously tried to do, and but Lopez was there. 
And Lopez, I don't know, you didn't see many shots of it, but, you know, either understeered, and could if any slight of understeer or oversteer into Bird, and that's it, he's hitting the wall. And that's, as soon as I saw I thought, it was a risk from Sam to go around the outside and put his car in that position so early in the race. So I I was expecting the contact, and which happened, which then for Bird, and we'll talk about that in a second. But what I we were discussing before is there was probably an opportunity but they put a wall there and then they put another wall behind it. So what we were thinking is that that could have been a perfect opportunity for maybe some I don't know sausage curbs, you know, and cause it like a small little runoff because if it was a runoff section then Bird could have either taken to the runoff and just had to give the place back. You probably would have dropped down quite a few places down the order in that space, but, you know, it would have stopped him from breaking his uh, his rear end, which then needed to be replaced in, in the red flag incident that comes up in a minute. So, if there was... I think there was a chance there to have some runoff, and I think maybe formerly in terms of its track design, if there is an area where you can have a little bit of a runoff area rather than just sticking a wall there but then have some sort of which they've done before like we've seen it in Beijing we've seen it in Putrajaya we've seen it in other tracks where the some chicanes you can just go straight through but there's like some sausage curves that you have to like go over but then you just have to get the position back I felt like maybe for Rome they could have had one there yeah that's true talking about circuit design actually is a good good point I've seen many people criticise Formula circuit design over the last couple of months. People always say it's a bit of a dilemma for Formula really, because on one hand, circuits seem to be too narrow, and people always complain about narrow circuits. Rarely any overtaken opportunities, but it's mainly just that the walls are just clo- too close to each other. On the other side, that's street circuits in a nutshell closed walls narrow circuits and street circuits are a core part of Formula A's DNA so on one hand we have FE needs walls and narrow street circuits as part of its DNA otherwise Formula E wouldn't be Formula E on the other side circuits are too narrow and provide too little overtaken opportunities what's what's your take on well, that well i was dan i'm sorry to like jump in but that's okay in terms of in terms of let's just move on to the red flag incident that just came on like a second ago but oh, yeah. if you so lopez goes in crashes you know sort of loses i don't know he might have got some damage i was just even thinking that there could have been some sort of damage to his car because it was, was a hefty yeah. hefty contact with bird okay yes it's a nice and tight twisty and then he's gone in and it's caused the pile up but at the same time, yes, even I was sort of thinking, oh, yes, a bit. what else could you do to sort of avoid a pile-up and that? It's a real mm, tight, little twisty, little probably not needed section of racetrack. But at the same time, we've seen pile-ups in street tracks all the time. And I was thinking about it. You had Macau, famously, like a couple of years ago in the GT race where there was a massive pile-up. But are we going to stop racing at Macau? I don't think so. Okay, Monaco. Monaco's had its fair share of pileups. I remember. I think it was, I think it was Jules Bianchi, or one of the Marussia drivers that crashed at Tabak and caused the, and caused the pileup like no one could get through. Yeah. Um. So, but that's a street track, so it's in nature. So that things, those things can happen at street tracks. So I don't think you can really blame Formula E too much for a pileup happening on a street track because you get that on a street track. So. It's just part and parcel of the game. I just think Formula E have had, after not having many red flags, have had way too many red flags in 
in their races recently. That's right, yeah. Yeah, and we've gone through five seasons and we've hardly seen a red flag. Okay, but in season, well, four seasons, but now in season five we seem to be having a red flag every other race, um, on average. And so we just, we need to stop that. But it's not anything, it's just the risks of what could happen, you know, like... The one we had in, in with Sony with Sims is like just the car was in the middle of the track. It was hard to recover. Like the only thing you could possibly do was either have a really slow safety car and get marshals and uh, and and trucks on and have it as a safety car, or stop the race and just wait and clear it. Don't lose any time. I think maybe Formula Re are using the time as like as precious, so they're not wasting. They instead of throwing a safety car and wasting ten minutes behind a safety car because the race is only forty five minutes long. So if we waste 10 minutes behind a safety car, going really slowly, okay, everyone's energy's fine, and we've recovered the car, we've lost 10 minutes of racing, everyone's energy is that perfect, they can race flat out, which means we get no overtaking, and no point of anything else. So maybe they're just throwing the red flag in a sense, to make sure those, those races don't come into procession, uh, like a procession, in a sense. What do you think, boys? I agree. Uh, and, and in terms of the circuit layout as well, um, on a different side of things, I know this weekend overtaking was quite a, a big topic, but you think of circuits like Mexico, which isn't a street circuit, it's a purpose-built circuit, look how difficult that was for drivers to overtake. It was almost impossible around that circuit, so it's, it's a difficult one they're in. Uh, but in, in terms of red flags, you're right, we have seen a fair few this season, haven't we? And I think... That is partially to blame the circuits, but they, they can't help that. But I think as well, the Gen 2 cars are big dogs. They are big <laughs> things. So, And we've seen how easy it is with the slight, tiniest bit of damage, how uncontrollable these cars are. I mean, Sam Bird, a couple of week, weekends ago, was saying that already these cars are so good to drive because they're, they're so unpredictable. And it's really down to the drivers and how they do work the car. So... I mean, Lopez's incident that that did cause the pileup. It was a it was an obscure one, wasn't it? it? It's not like at any other point in the weekend we saw anything like that, and it was because it was lap one. You know, if there hadn't have been three cars right behind him and a couple on the outside, that sort of incident I don't think would have happened. So, I I think they're fine with what they're doing. For for me, I I don't go into Paris next time out and think oh I'm not looking forward to this because it's a street circuit because I think for me that's part of the reason I like Formula E because in Formula 1 it is there are so many runoff areas and there isn't that element that if they make a mistake they're going to be in the wall so I, I think I see it a little bit differently to certain fans okay good yeah I just wanted to, to touch on that talking point I think hmm <sighs> It's a difficult question to, to to answer because, in my opinion, FE's circuits are a bit too narrow in certain parts. Yeah, I agree. Or, put differently, FE could have put escape roads, or not, not maybe not ex escape roads, but these little runoff areas around some parts of the circuit, and instead they put a wall there, which was the case at uh, the the. Which was the case in the location. Lopez obviously had his had this incident, uh, which uh, p uh, led to the red flag. I think it's it's a parking space in 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 Rome there, and there's no real need to put a wall there. If I'm not completely mistaken, maybe I'm just mixing up my my 
geography of Rome right now. But if there's space yeah. for runoff areas, Formery tends to not use it and instead put a wall there. And that like, might be the best idea to, to fix the problem with circuit design. So, just, so, just to keep it current so we don't repeat ourselves in like 20 minutes' time, let's just look at the Evans and Lotterer, um pass where for the race lead where Evans overtook Lotterer for at that chicane where Sam and, and um, Lopez came together. Now, if... There was no wall. If there was a runoff area where Lotterer, because obviously Mitch had gone down and committed down the inside, and you know Lotterer, I don't know how Lotterer kept out on the wall. He must have slammed on those brakes. I don't even know how he didn't lock up. Like he managed to get it stopped just in time before he hit that wall. Now there is space, as Tobias was saying, to have. A, you know, we saw it because that's where they pulled off, and there was a little escape road, which you know you could have as part of the escape road anyway. Uh, as like as a runoff where Sims went off in in the in qualifying I think it was, um, so there was space. So instead of having Lotterer merely hitting a wall and stopping, if he just cut from the chicane and had to give the place up, at least he's still in the race. You know he's not. He could have hit the wall. It could have been another DNF for Lotterer through no fault of his own. Okay, but at least if there was a runoff where we can have a runoff section, then. That's fine. Obviously, not every corner we can have a runoff section. It's a street circuit. But if there's a design and you can have a small runoff area, like they do in Monaco in the swimming pool chicanes, if you can have a small little runoff where drivers can just cut it and stay in the race and just give up the position and fall in behind, then I think we'd be happy with that. Um, because, you know, it's unfair. And I think it would also promote overtaking. I don't know what you think. I think it would also promote... Because if you... No, you can cut the chicane, not to keep the position, because obviously if you cut the chicane and keep the position and you've gained that unfair advantage, you need to give it back. But, yeah. you know, drivers, I suppose, if you don't, if you know that you, if imagine if Laura hit the wall, Evans wouldn't have won that race, because Evans would have caused the collision. Yeah. Yeah, and, and therefore would have been penalised and wouldn't have won the race. Okay, but if Evans did that move and... There was a runoff area, and Lotterer took to the runoff area, and Evans went through. Then there would be no penalty, and you know the race result would have stood as it did. So, obviously, in that situation, Lotterer had to hit the wall and not finish. But you know, it was millimeters from something like that happening. It was millimeters from him breaking his front wing and having to pit to replace it, and then losing all those positions. It was those fine margins. Yeah, and yeah. runoff areas also reduce the risk of red flags, yes. don't they? Had it yeah. been for a bit of a runoff area, remember Berlin Alexanderplatz yes. a couple of years ago? <coughs> there was a chicane. I think it even was turn turns two the and Bob three. The Bill the Bollard. This little chicane with Bob the Bollard. Yeah, yeah, Bob, not Bill. And uh, Bob the Bollard. I actually opened a Facebook yes, page. Yes, I remember. Him, and a Twitter page. <laughs> ah, those, those were the days, were the days Jack. Yes. Oh God. Back in the day. I'm yeah, anyway. I think uh, I still um, follow um, you. <laughs> 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 I still have the, have the accounts to the Twitter account, yes. actually. But there, that tends not to be... A, a Bob doesn't tend to be around anymore in FE. But if we had escape routes, it re obviously reduces the risk of red flags as well. And that's good for the show. That's good for TV broadcasters. I mean... 
in Rome, we had around 50 minutes, I think, of red flag, where there were, were just no cars on track. And in Germany, where I come from, that's that's been a major issue for the bro- bro- the broadcast because we had like the German equivalent of the BBC broadcast, like BBC One, actually. Is it RHL? The, imagine BBC One did Formula E. That's what happened in Germany over the last weekend. But they had to move on to the next program at five. So they had the start, the first one and a half laps, and then 50 minutes of red flag, and then moved on to the next program. And runoff areas may... I mean, people complain in F1 about runoff areas, but in Formula E, I think it's a different story because that prevents long red flag stoppages. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I think we talked about about it all in terms of circuit design. It's an idea for the future of Formula E. Maybe talk about circuit design for the next couple of years, but for the time being. I mean, hindsight is a great thing, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, and and that was one of the main, I was going to say main overtaking spots, that chicane, but if you would have looked at the track over the weekend, I don't think that would have been one of the ones you would have said, oh, yeah, there's going to be overtaking there. So I think it's just, <laughs> That's true, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Let, let, <laughs> let's move on. Um, so at the end of lap one, that's how far we've got so far <laughs> to the end of lap one, uh, we obviously had the red flag, and somehow, through all the chaos, only Gary Paffert was the only guy who ended up not continuing. Someone who managed to wrestle their car back to the pits was Sam Bird. That was that was a mighty effort. Um, and then, you, as you two just mentioned, we had a, a hell of a long red flag, um, which isn't ideal but like we say that that's what we got um and to be honest the race control was as fair as they could be letting some of the the guys further down the field who hadn't done that extra lap they went out first and then we saw the leaders go out afterwards so i quite like that that they they used their time wisely i want to put but they they definitely had plenty of time of time um the race resumed the focus was was fully on that front fight between Andre Lotterer, Mitch Evans, and the almost chess game they were playing with the tack mode. Behind them was Stoffel Van Dorn, somehow, uh, in, in a car which, every time he's qualified highly this season, has just gone backwards and backwards in the race. He was keeping up with those two quite well, I thought. And then behind Van Dorn was quite a gap to Boemi, and we had this... I suppose it was quite a, a massive scrap in the midfield, to be honest with you. We had the likes of D'Ambrosio, De Costa, De Grassi, Verline, Bird, Frines, all of these guys making overtakes, but we didn't we didn't really get to see it. Um, so I don't really know if, if there's anything in particular you guys wanted to say about that midfield fight, because on paper it, it actually looked really good. Yeah, it was really scrappy, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're right. Um, the main battle in the midfield, obviously, was Freins and Buemi. We've seen these two battle it out in Sanya last time out as well. So that had a bit of a... How do you say it in English? A bit of a taste. Um, I mean, both of them... Both the two were really going at it. In Sanya and in Roma once again. And... Um, yeah, sh- I mean, shall, shall we hear what, what, what Fryens had to say about the battle? Have you because got it Because we actually ready? have a bit of a quote here. Uh, we, we, we've got it, yeah. Go for it. So let's hear what, what Robin Fryens had to say about 
his battle against the Nissan. Yes, I used my attack mode aerial in the race as well, just after the red flag, to try to overtake him. Um, again, story of the season that you know, if you have attack mode and you're behind, behind the Nissan at similar pace, he still pulls away out of the corners. So it's very hard to overtake him. Um, I didn't get a shot, so I tried. It was a very clean overtaking opportunity I had from him. He gave me space, I gave him space. We didn't touch at all. He was side by side through turn nine, so that was fair from both drivers. Um, so good from him. And eventually, yeah, he I got attack mode, he pulled away, and then I just tried to hit my targets, get in my rhythm, and slowly, slowly get back up his, up his tail, um, which was the case. And um, yeah, use attack mode, use the energy to be back behind him. I was just waiting to use for him to use the attack mode, which was the case. So everything worked as planned, as we discussed. So um, that's, uh, in that case, it was a good day. One thing I really found interesting about this interview is him talking about the Nissan pulling away. It's been a topic, a hotly debated topic this this year. Nissan have done something with their powertrain. The rumor is they have a twin MGU setup, which gives them an, an advantage going out of corners. It's a bit complex to to explain right now in in the the amount of time we have, but. The rumor is Nissan have opted for a twin MGU setup, which gives them an unfair advantage. And it's got to do with energy storage in the second MGU. It's really complex. Um, another interesting point uh, Robin raises, apart from trying to follow the quick out of the corners, Nissan is attack mode. And we've seen debates about attack mode all all year long, basically the new strategic element giving drivers 225 kilowatts instead of 200 in the race um guys how do you like it in in rome last time out um first and foremost unfair advantage is a bit harsh like i think it's clever right unfair advantage they're not been yeah. they've not been banned for it but they're planning on banning it. Well, maybe, well, they've taken a it, long time if they want to ban it so it's been I it's mean, been legal I, for seven races yeah. they've only got what six left so it's a bit late in the day yeah i mean it, it, it's been homologated yes. so there's so what's the problem i think calling it unfair isn't really that fair <laughs> yeah you're right. i mean i'm only <laughs> i'm only putting your ear but when you said it i was like whoa <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. teams say it's unfair well, of course they would because um, do you see how it pulls yeah. away from a straight like what nissan have done is it, the, the acceleration that hmm. it gets out of the corners is is unbelievable and if they've found a loophole yeah. in the regulations that's a, and that's what motorsport's about and you've got you know if, if it's been homologated and checked by the fia and 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 so forth then you've got to give the hats off to them because they've done an amazing job but yeah but that costs a lot doesn't it does it? cost a lot that's the big yeah that's a big but question shall we ban it because of costs otherwise all other teams would opt for it in season seven maybe but and but but that just costs. Well, a lot. that's the f anyway. that's the thing. They all they all have to run within a cost cap anyway. Like they they're very limited on cost and how much they can spend. It's mm -hmm. not unlimited amount of money. It's not Th Formula One. Like there is a limit that they have to spend. Like they can't go over. The team, the teams are limited. Manufacturers are not. So manufacturers can spend how they can spend all sorts of money. But the teams. Oh, are I thought they were all limited. limited I thought budget. that was the whole point of the cost cap and keeping costs down because that was what Formula E yeah. preached. 
I might have been wrong. Yeah, so it's just the teams. So it's the teams it. within. Right. The, it's the teams within. So the powertrain they can do what they want, but the rest yeah, they so, can't do. So the teams have an operational cost budget. I'm not sure how much it is. Actually. No, it's never been really. But the teams said. have a specific amount of money they can spend over a year. However, manufacturers don't. Oh, and lovely. Renault spend north of ten million quid each year. Yes, uh, I had that part. It's interesting, yeah, isn't it? Audi does as well, and manufacturers just don't have a cost cap. It's and just so easy to avoid, MGU, Yeah, this twin MGU setup just costs a lot in development, and that's the the worry many teams have. Well, because one, one and they just put a cost cap on on manufacturers then, so you can't spend more than good five question. million. To do, isn't it? Well, I mean, good look question. at look well, that's at what they want to do. And Mercedes now, because Mercedes but, aren't an actual team, but it's a a separate leg of the same company in essence isn't it so it's like um it's like formula one i always find the Haas model an easy one to put it towards if they put a cost cap in formula one Haas buy their cars or their chassis from delara but delara wouldn't have a cost cap so they can just pump all this money in and then Haas just use a one-off purchase to buy the chassis so i, I think it's that kind of idea that they can't regulate every single company with the cost cap another debate right but yeah a fun one <laughs> but yeah well the thing is like Formula have always been they've, they've always practiced what they preach they've always wanted to keep costs down that's yeah. why cars were identical in the first season that's why in the second season they could only change like the inverters and hardly like and the stuff on the rear suspension like you couldn't really do much and there's all been this focus on software it's homologated at the beginning of the season so you can't do anything during the season I think that's probably where the cost cap like comes in to effect. So it stops them from spending money during the season to fix problems that they may have done, you know, because it's too late to be homologated. But I feel like, well, maybe there should be some sort of cost cap was, uh, for the manufacturers. And I didn't realise, I thought it was the whole the whole team, so I thought that included the manufacturers. So I obviously read that bit of the regulation a bit wrong. But thank you for clarifying, because I thought there was a cost cap for the whole thing. But um, if yeah. they're... If 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 Nissan have spent the money, then fine, they spent the money. But you know what's really interesting then? If there is unlimited amount of spending that manufacturers can do at the moment, how incredibly tight is this championship? I thought it was incredibly tight because of the cost cap thing, and they couldn't spend that, that much money. That's what was keeping it so tight. But when you put it that way, then to think about it, how tight this championship is, considering that Audi, Nissan, Jaguar, you know, they can spend as much as they like, it's actually it's pretty impressive. It actually is, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, but, but at the same time, we see teams with less of a budget, or manufacturers with less of a budget. Neo, Penske, Venturi, all of these guys, especially Venturi's customer team, HWA, at the back end of, of, of the team standings. But that, that's what happens, though, sadly. Standings. That's motorsport, and that's been motorsport. You know, the ones who spend the most money, the ones who have the budget, or the ones who can, you know use it the best like yeah. you kind of expect that like with the amount of manufacturers we've got like if you can't play ball with Audi and you're a manufacturer then you know you're not going to you're not going to win races and I think that's what Neo's fallen victim to I think Neo spent a lot of money operationally like they used to have a, did, uh, you can't maybe you won't because in like in Donington 
and, and maybe in Valencia, I think you maybe have been to, they have these beautiful, massive trucks, like proper motorsport, luxury sort of trucks. And I think they spent maybe, I'm not saying they spend money in the wrong places, but maybe it looks like they spent money in the wrong places. Like getting all their facilities sort of upgraded, but then not actually spending the money needed probably on the, on the powertrain. Um, but anyway, to go to your question about attack mode, um, because we sort of we <laughs> that's where we started. <laughs> where we started. Um, yeah. So, what did we think of attack mode? Attack mode in Rome, I wasn't the biggest fan of. I don't think there was much of a penalty. I think drivers were losing between half, three quarters to a second to a full second, probably taking attack mode, which you know, arguably, um, probably isn't enough. Um, there's been a lot of debate about attack mode over the weekend. You know, drivers are wanting more power, saying that. 225 kilowatts isn't enough to like get an overtaking move and you know drivers are using it to just get it over with to using it as a waste or using it to defend or trying to use it at a time where they don't really need to use it they're just using it because they can and they're not going to lose anything from it um which isn't the actual which was actually really interesting talking to drivers about because that wasn't the the that wasn't really the purpose of attack mode and to finally be able to speak to their drivers and get their actual opinions on it was actually um, really interesting. Um, but I want to credit Robin Frines. Um, obviously, uh, he did pass Bawemi using attack mode, and Bawemi was in attack mode. So Frines had gone into attack mode first, and then the lap before, Bawemi then went into it the lap after, and but Frines was... So both of them then had attack mode. So then it's basically anyone's race, just at a higher power usage. But Frines was able to get the move done to finish fourth, so I thought that was that was pretty cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm at the beginning of the season. I, I loved attack mode. The past couple of races, it's it's been there, but I, I don't really think it's had much of an effect on the racing overall. So I'd, I'd like to see them. I know over the weekend, a lot of the drivers were mentioning um, they wanted to see more power added to attack mode. So I think that could spice it up a little bit. But I think overall, it's been better implemented than a than fan boost was sorry i've got to mention that every time um <laughs> but, but that is still a thing uh, and that that's almost might as well not be a thing anymore fan boost but it's it's fine attack mode um anyone want to add anything else to attack mode or should we I've, should we well, get to the end of the race a little bit or what, what do you fancy i've got something i'm not really sure if it attack mode was supposed to be a disadvantage it was supposed to be a strategic element yeah yeah and in Sanya, it obviously was a disadvantage. This time out in Rome, I think it was an advantage to have attack mode. And that still makes it a strategic element, doesn't it? So you lose around half a second to one second by activating it. But we've seen drivers come really close to... I mean, by the end of the lap, they were back at, at their earlier position and the 225 kilowatts really helped in Rome. Long straights some big acceleration parts that's where the extra power does help and extra power and coming closer to your arrival still is a, is a strategic element in my opinion so yeah true it, I don't think it was supposed to be a disadvantage just a strategic element and I think attack mode once again delivered in terms of being st a strategic element 
I suppose I don't think personal personally I don't think they lost enough time in attack mode. I don't think the panel I think they should have lost more time. I suppose yeah you're right but by you know using the using the straights they were basically right back up if the person in front hadn't used attack mode but then they were struggling to get past which is why this call for more power um you know but then maybe having a bigger penalty so you're losing 2 seconds or 3 seconds to activate it but then you're you're 40 kilowatts more you're 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 in full qualifying power mode but then as some drivers were saying if you go into full qualifying power mode obviously the faster you go the more energy you use so that means the more energy saving you have to do but that's what some drivers were saying but yeah but that's great because that means there's more you know yes you want to you have to use the attack mode but then you've got to use it and you know, I don't know. I don't know if the drivers, the drivers must be able to. If they go to 250 kilowatts, say I'm only have to overtake one driver, like Franz did. He could only overtake Buemi. Like I'm unsure. I'm pretty sure they could probably do this. But if I overtake Buemi using 250 kilowatts, I don't need to carry on using 250 kilowatts for the whole. I could maybe I could turn it down, or like turn it down to a lower setting. Maybe you could, maybe that could you could have attack mode but you can maybe use a different power mapping so you can you're allowed to use 250 but if you use 250 then your energy is going to plummet and you've got to then once you've got the move done you've got to then save more energy because you've it's like that you know reward and cost and reward thing going back and forth so if you get the reward by using attack mode but then you've, you're costing yourself because then you're going to have to save more energy because you've used more energy then that could be really interesting because someone might make a mistake and use too much energy trying to get past someone and then have to really save and then they've 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 not managed attack mode properly and that to me could make it really more strategic okay because if you can use you know if you can maybe use between 225 to 250 but it's your prerogative for that amount of time what you what power map you want to use within that so if you use more then you have to save more i think that's brilliant I think that's maybe what they could do. I don't know. That literally just came to my head as I was speaking. So what do you think? <laughs> I agree with you, Jack. Yeah. Uh, go on twice if you want. I agree as well. I mean, we've seen power being raised in FE from season to season. And I'm sure, that's, sure at some stage we'll have 300 kilowatts of qualifying power. One day maybe with a Gen 4 or Gen 5 car will have the exact same power output as F1 has. 300... How much power does an F1 car have in terms of kilowatts? Um, mm, let's see. Uh, the, what, the electric motor mm. unit that produces 160 brake horsepower. The kinetic one. No, the entire power unit. Oh, the entire power unit with the whole thing. It's about 800. Mm. Let's say they have 950 horsepower, which would be around 700 kilowatts. So we might see 700 kilowatts in 10 years. That's a long way off now. Let's talk about <laughs> the next two years. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that's the point I'm, I'm, aiming, at, I'm aiming at getting to. We, sh we will see more power in qualifying maybe as soon as next year or the year after. And that gives the possibility to adapt attack mode as well. And I agree that's, that's a good idea for, for the show and for the drivers with more energy having to be saved but at the same time being able to use more energy that's a good idea for for the future of attack mode. For Marie, we're just here we're yeah. just saying yeah we're here we have great <laughs> ideas yeah all you need is just a little check and you know we can help you out so <laughs> um but the only one thing i want to say before we go is just we've had the same uh, please spice it up as well like 
two attack modes for four minutes every single race. Like, what's the point in announcing it half an hour before or 45 minutes before the race starts if it's the same every race? Um, you know, they have to arm That's it. They have to arm it twice. So this was another thing that I thought of. So instead of arming it twice, well, you have to arm it twice, but you can maybe have three activations. Maybe you can use it three times, but you can only. But you don't have to use it three times. You know, you have to use it twice, but there's a third time that you can use it. But the minutes are short, so instead of using it for four minutes, you've got two-minute intervals of using attack mode. You know, but you have one whether you can choose if you want to use an extra one or not. So just I don't know, just spice it up because it's the same. It's not supposed to be the same every race weekend. That's that was part of the pitch about attack mode. It was going to be different at every race weekend, but it it hasn't. Yeah, but I mean they have the option to use it five times. During I think the race. they have to arm agree, it maybe. five times. I think what that is is you're you're allowed to arm That's it. True, yeah. You have to arm it, say, so that the people know the race control know you're going to use attack mode. But if you arm it and then opt not to do it, so you can only choose to do it five times and in those five times twice you actually have to do it yeah that's right I'm not really sure if they should have the option of having three attack modes and only using two how about maybe just using three attack modes in a race maybe. how about that but then shorten the time limit like then shorter yeah that's right so we've know, seen two different. activations for four minutes each how about three minute, three activations for two minutes of attack mode yeah, and then you can switch Which between each race. one and a half laps. So if you feel like, you know, attack mode might be really beneficial, so you don't want to have them for a long time, but give them an extra attack mode just in case. Like, so three for two. And if you feel like overtaking could be hard and they need a l in, in that track and they might need attack mode for longer in that race, then you go for two to four. Like, just some sort of variation. It's worth a try, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> while they've got the option, you, know, you might as well do it. While we're still alive and breathing, Formula E, we're still here. <laughs> like, just ask. Yeah. And ask and we'll provide. No. Um, should we get back to the race? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, there's not really much more to talk about in, in terms of the race. So we spoke about it a little bit earlier. Um, the, the clinical moment, the moment that this race will be remembered for, the, the Mitch Evans move on Andre Lotterer, a, a smart move from Evans, lucky that it paid off, I, I think Jack you were mentioning that a little bit earlier, that very easily could have been tears for Andre Lotterer, but and I think it was a, yeah, yeah both of them, yeah, um, but I, I think that was almost a visual representation of, of how Lotterer has evolved from even last year in Rome where he was really hot-headed last season I felt always keen for a crash it seemed but he I know Jack you spoke about this in uh, in your interview after the race with Andre Lotterer but he really is becoming a, a calmer driver but a really consistent driver and yes I mean we might as well say the result now. Evans won, but and yes, he's come away with, with a second place, but somehow he's up there in the championship now. And we're starting to see some of these drivers that... I mean, look at D'Ambrosio, who, who now leads the championship. He's not been on the podium since Marrakesh. You know, he's, he's been nowhere. He's been always 19th on the grid, 17th on the grid, and yet he picks up these seventh places in a race. I mean, this time out, he managed to get eighth. And, and yet it's that consistency which is really helping some of those drivers. So, I mean, it, it, it was a great race for Jaguar. And, and th there's no denying that they really did have the pace this weekend, albeit I, I don't really know where that's come from. Um, 
I was obviously very happy. I, I quite like Mitch Evans, but for you two, how did you see this race for Jaguar? It, is it going to be a season where they can win again? I, I'm not really too sure. I'm not really sure about it either, but I have to say, and I tweeted about that a couple of days ago, I don't think there's a way of not being happy for Mitch Evans and Jaguar. They've been working so, so hard for the last couple of years. They have, they've had so many dis- disappointments over the last few years. And winning and formerly, the, the first one obviously always is the most difficult one. And winning and formerly takes so much hard work. It takes brains, raw speed, talent, takes tenacity. That's maybe the big the big word I'm, I'm looking for. And Mitch really has shown that he is tenacious and that he knows how to. Uh, he's he's really worked out for the, for this one. And uh, yeah, we really have to give it to him. I mean, thoroughly deserved. Um, no matter which team you support, you have to be happy for Jaguar, and especially for Mitch Evans. His first win since the 2016. GP2 race in Austria and that's been a long drought for him and that even more is a reason to be happy for him Um, Uh. speaking about Jaguar's chances about a possible win, not really sure, Mitch has been a frequent point scorer obviously and he scored decent points, 12 points uh, which is 4th place in Adiria, Saudi Arabia the season opener um, he's always been in the top 10 this year but he seemed to be one of the front runners in the midfield and this might have just been luck and for the first time all things coming together for Jaguar I'm not really uh, sure what? in FE this year anyone could win that's what I always say and Jaguar certainly has the pace and they can show they can perform good so far, the luck has has been the only missing thing, but I'm not sure if I'm not. Re- hmm. Let's put it that way: Jagger still has the performance to win in the, in the next races, but I'm sure the competition will bounce back, and that might be the hindering factor for Jagger. But the thing I the, the thing I find years. is interesting. So I was just looking at the um, the drivers' standings, and I'm just looking. So Jerome D'Ambrosio, who's leading the championship with 65 points. He's been in Group 1 for the whole season, so, you know, for the for qualifying system, but his race results have really been affected. So in the last three races, he's only scored 12 points, but he's still championship leader. But then you're looking... Antonio Fuxicosta's also... He's been in there for Group 1 for 5, but 64. So Round 5, he only scored one point. He scored two points in 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 Rome, where we just came from, and he got third place in Sanya. But what's interesting to me is now the Group 2 runners who have been in frequently for Group 2, because obviously Group 1 we've had the likes of Sam Bird, um, De Costa, they've started, the Bohemi, they're starting to fall down the order now, now going into these Group 2s, and the people that were in Group 2 and Group 3 are beginning to become higher up in the championship, because now we've got... Yeah, on, Group 3 you've got, is looking crazy. You've got... Andre Lotterer, who's been in Group 2 and Group 3, he's now third in the championship. Mitch Evans, who's been in Group 3 and Group 2, who's now fourth in the championship. Lucas Degrassi, who wasn't, hasn't always been in Group 1, he's been maybe Group 2, he's now he's now fifth. Robin Frines is sixth. So you've had Sam Bird, who was our championship leader for ages, is down in eighth place. You've got reigning champion John Eric Verne down in seventh. 
Yes, you could say there are ten, there are eleven points separating Sam Bird um, from uh, Sam Bird from Jerome D'Ambrosio. Sorry, at the top of the standings, but that's where, in my opinion, in terms of the qualifying system, where it's slightly flawed, is that those that were at the top of the championship for so long are now flowing down the table. Now this is what Sam was saying. Now he's in Group Two. This is his chance to then go back to try and reclaim some ground in the championship and start qualifying high. Because look at Sam's results since round four. He was top of the championship at this stage, round four, and he scored two points. Then in round five, he got nine, nothing in round six, and nothing in round seven. Like, but Sam Bird, we were, you know, were, looked like a proper championship protagonist, but is falling along the wayside just because of these bad qualifying performances. B, by being in Group 1. So it's really interesting. To and s- Lopez punting and, off. Yeah, but obviously what happens is if you have a bad qualifying result, especially in street circuits, you are far more likely to be in a midfield collision. Like, it's, yeah, that's it's true, just, yeah. it's just yeah, fact. Right. You, you put yourself at risk. And that's what I don't like about this qualifying system is that those championship protagonists who were there early on are now finding themselves, are now being penalised in a sense, and finding themselves in a position where they're losing out in the championship race because they're having to fight through to a midfield. And fighting through the midfield, as we've seen in Formula E, ain't ain't easy. These drivers are fantastic drivers. They're not going to let you go past easily, considering how close these cars are. And are now losing out in the championship and now have to regain and see if they can now regain. And I don't feel, personally, I don't think a championship should be artificially doing this to create a really close championship. I feel like it's a bit wrong. But, um, yeah. But looking at the table, obviously it's incredibly tight. But I think the way we're we're getting there is a bit wrong. I I agree with you. And um, the, the stat that which, I mean, we all know now, seven races, seven different drivers, seven different teams. You look at, like you say, Jack, Group 2 and Group 3. Looking at Group 3 now, you've got Pascal Verline, Oli Rowland, Boemi, Van Dorn and Sims. Four drivers haven't won. Very easily, we go into Paris, and, and I think they're going to be, especially Verline, Rowland and Boemi, I think they're your favourites going into that race. And like you said, because of the qualifying system, it's going to help those guys out so, so much. They've got quick cars, especially Nissan. I, I think they're the, the big outlier that haven't won a race this season. So really, the only guy that I'm thinking of that has been able to sort of somehow cheat the system is Andre Lotterer. Um, and I don't really know how he's been able to do that, get so high up in the championship without getting that win. But even he, he's going to be sort of stuck now as well, isn't he? So... Are you two feeling the same that it's next time is going to be sort of Nissan, Verline, those sort of guys that are going to be in for the for the hunt? Well, you never know what will happen. No. It might rain in Paris, <laughs> and then yeah, <laughs> we have the tables turned once again. Yeah. In theory, yes, group th- groups three and four. I don't even think that the disadvantage of being in uh, so the difference between groups three and four. I don't think it's that big. In in comparison to the difference between between groups one and two, so group one obviously has the has the worst conditions in theory, of all, but afterwards they've cleaned the circuit, and then it's smooth sailing for groups two to four, and 
of course there's di there's difference between qualifying two and qualifying four, but the difference isn't as big as it is compared in comparison to groups one and two. So, in theory, yes, group one has the worst conditions, but afterwards, in my opinion, anyone coming out of groups two to four could be in the super pool super pool shootout for for Paris. Yeah, yeah we'll I see. Agree. Paris has a lot of trees going standing around the circuit. There'll be lots of debris on the track, uh, leaves falling, dust settling between FP2 and qualifying. It'll be important to be in Super Bowl, obviously, and it'll be important to be in one of those last three groups in, in Paris, more than it has been in the last three races. Um, but I'm not sure if it's that much much of an advantage of being in Group Three compared to being in Group Two. It's interesting because obviously some people in Group One have gone into Super Pole, and that's the argument. Well, sometimes it happens, but it shouldn't just be sometimes, should it? These are your if these are your best drivers, and these drivers are fighting to show that they're the best. But if you're hampering them and stopping them from being the best drivers out there and showing and sh stopping the manufacturers who are spending the millions that we're talking about, but if they can't qualify at the front of the grid because the track, because when they go out on the track, it's not as good as when someone else goes out on the track, then it's just, I, I don't know. It, for me, it's just it's just a little bit. It's a little bit artificial. It's a little bit just... But it's good for the show. That's what you hear. And even <laughs> the drivers, this is what was annoying me. And I suppose, um, you know, they were speaking through gritted teeth in the interviews. They were like, yeah, I don't like it. But it's good for the show. Like, everyone seems to love it. Yay, it's good because everyone loves it. But I don't love it. Because, I don't know, I'm a motor racing fan and I'm used to normal qualifying systems, you know, showing me who's the fastest driver on, on, on that day. I don't think Formula E does that. Like, I agree that the group system is probably the best way to go because, obviously, you can't have 20 cars out on track in, like, a group session, like in a knockout Formula 1 session because the amount of blocking will go on will be, especially in tracks that are, like, less than a minute, like Mexico. But at the same time... You can't just keep penalising the people at the top of the championship. And, you know, maybe luck could be turned. You could say, like, what happened in Rome with the rain could happen to to the people at the back end of qualifying. So maybe Group 1 will be lucky it's dry, but Group 2 to 4 it's raining. So that means Group 1 will be in Super Bowl and then they get happy days. But it's rare that that happens in Formula E. We know that with rain. It's very rare that we see it. Um... We've seen to see it in between sessions lately, actually, but when it comes to race time, or when it comes to the, it's it's dry. So, but it seems to just you know it rains on purpose in between sessions, but it doesn't actually rain during the session. But anyway. But you can't bet on that. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Yes. Um. We've been going quite a while. Um. So I think we'll we'll kind of wrap it up here. Uh. But. Obviously, you know, before we go anywhere, we, we've got one very important question to ask, um, and that's driver of the day, my, my favourite bit of the podcast. Uh, this week, we will start with Tobias, because I wasn't very nice to you at the, very, at the beginning, mate, so you, <laughs> you can get to go first this time. My driver of the day has to be none other than Mitch Evans. He's seriously outperformed his car in, in Rome last time out. 
He's worked so hard for it and he's been fighting against Andre Lotterer in the overpowered DS. These cars are incredible. DS to Cheetah is incredible this year. And we didn't expect to see that kind of performance when we start this season in, in Valencia. Or maybe not start the season, but pre-season testing in Valencia. We didn't expect to be DS to be that quick. And Mitch stood up to Andre. He fought against him. Decisive move was the race deciding move by him this time out. And um, yeah, Mitch Evans has to be my driver of the day. Absolutely outstanding drive from the Kiwi driver. And um, yeah, he's my driver of the day. No question. Yeah, that's not a bad one. I'll, I'll give you that. Um, Jack, I'll let you go next. I'll, I'll be third this week. All right, then. So I'm going to go for Stoffel Van Dorn because I think, wow, what a drive from the HWA again. Obviously, what Jaguar did was fantastic, but what HWA have done has been even more incredibly fantastic. The development that that car seems to be taking, it seems to be moving in the right direction, which Mercedes will be very happy with. Um, as it comes to season six, so the car seems to move, and Van Dorn is showing, I think, and I think it has shown the former e paddock ever since he's got in that he is a top class driver because I think he's dragged that HWA in races to places where it shouldn't have been. Maybe even in Rome, it might he might have been dragging it a little bit, but I think it's definitely been moving forward. And you know, even lo and behold, the car he must have dragged it so hard. During that race, you could say that it broke down after the after the line. <laughs> he, he got the most out of it. But, you know, it doesn't matter if it breaks down. Once you cross the checkered flag, the result stands. So, and he had a drive shaft failure for those who were who were interested and who didn't know. Um, but he managed to get it back to the pins in, in some sort of limp, ho, um, limp home mode, if I can get it out. But, yeah, fantastic drive from Van Dorn. Um, Really, and he pulled away from the likes of Sebastian Buemi in that quick Nissan that we were talking about. Had a comfortable gap, so a solid, solid third place. I'm a bit stuck. Um, yeah, th- those two are the favourites, and and Van Dorn. We haven't really spoke a lot about today, but yeah, he had a a really impressive race. But with the drivers I've got left, um, again, we didn't see much in terms of on the on the TV. Uh, from some of those guys in the midfield. But once again, for me, Jerome D'Ambrosio, um, coming into this season, I don't think anyone would have expected him to be anywhere near the championship. But once again, starting P19, getting all the way up to 8th place, did a brilliant switchback move on both Da Costa and Verne, I think it was, in, in one go. He was really racy in that midfield. And for me, I've not really shown him a lot of love this season, but... Once again today, proving that consistency and yeah, really showing that he could really be in serious contention for this championship. But that is your lot for the sixth episode of the Formula E Zone podcast. Blimey, you've been here for quite some time. So thank you, as always, for listening. And again, I think we gave quite a unique perspective on Rome, considering we were all there. It was a, it was a brilliant weekend, my first ever Formula E weekend actually being at the circuit so I just want to say once again thank you to Jack and to the Formula E zone guys to to get me to the circuit as always in the description you can find links to Patreon links to Twitter links to the website for all the latest and greatest Formula E news thank you for listening and we'll see you next time for the Paris E Prix